Sandy's leadership and, and Natalie's family, I believe, or something to that effect. Thank you so much for leading us. That was fantastic. Thank you. Perfect for getting us into the mood of the season. Um, I know after this I'll be going to my side of the family's uh, Christmas get-together. I'm looking forward to that, looking forward to the holidays. I hope many of you are, but we also recognize that there's some tough times for many of us as well uh, through the Christmas season. We want to recognize you, and I hope in, tomorrow, in th uh, this morning's service that you'll find some hope in the presence of God. So let me pray for us as we prepare to hear from God's Word. Heavenly Father, we love you, we need you, and we're desperate for you. This Christmas season, help us again, Lord, to observe your wonderful glory found in a manger and then on a cross. Lord, your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. Would you open our hearts to the message of your word? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we are doing uh, the series, this uh, will be the last installment of Promises Fulfilled. How Christmas fulfills all of the promises of God. So that's what we're going to be going into. And as I talked about last week, the Bible, although it's many stories, is really one story. Those stories all have strands and themes that connect them all together into one grand narrative. And one of those themes that goes through the entire Bible is the theme of God's promises. In the Old Testament, the first big part of the Bible, we see God giving blessing to the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, God's people. God is giving these blessings and these promises to Israel. And one of them is the promise of salvation. And we looked at that last week. And we saw that Christmas is the answer to the question of God's promises. But there are some other promises in there that at the end of the Old Testament, we're still not sure how will these promises come about. How will God make good on the promises that he gives his people? And the promise that we're going to focus on this morning is the promise of God's presence. God says to his people, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go. I will be your God and you will be my people. But it seems that, well, that can be a little bit of a rocky road. And we're going to get into that a little bit here this morning. What I want to show you uh, today is that God's presence is actually what you most need, what you most desire. In fact, what you are designed for. You might wonder, okay, we've got this God who is omnipresent. Isn't the, the promise of his presence already fulfilled in the fact that he's everywhere? If you're sharp, you've probably thought of that. Okay, God, if you promise your presence and you're everywhere, isn't that promise already fulfilled just there? You're sharp. And that partly is true. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He, he is with us right now. He's also present on Venus. He's present throughout the entire universe. But it's actually slightly more complicated than that. Here's an example. In the Old Testament, the Israelites built a temple that housed the manifest presence of God. And the presence of God is often described as this cloud of glory. So they create this temple, and God is present in the innermost sanctum of that temple. It's called the Holy of Holies. God is present there. But which one is it? I mean, is, is God present in the Holy of Holies and, and not anywhere else? Well, 
actually, he's, yeah, he's present in the Holy of Holies and also present everywhere else and also present in heaven. Now, how does that work? Well, it's complicated. God's presence manifests itself differently at different times in history in different locations. God's presence is different at different times. In the Holy of Holies, it's present. God is present in the heavens in his glory, and God is present with us now. It's all of those things at once. And when God pre uh, promises his presence to his people, he isn't promising his presence like, he's, like he is present on Venus. That's not the presence of God that he's promised his people. In fact, God's presence for his people is even different than the presence that is offered to people who don't believe in God, who are not followers of God. The presence of God that he promises his people is his hesed, his loving presence. Hesed is this idea, this word in the Old Testament that means loyal love. This covenant love, this, this loyalty as a heavenly father. That's the presence he promises his people. It's not the same presence that you'll find of God on Mars. It's a different, better, more wonderful, more glorious, more caring presence of God. That's the presence he promises his people. Now, you might think, okay, that's all well and good, but why do I want that? What is so good about being in the presence of God? And I want to show you something here. Really, I believe, and this is true in scripture, that what you're designed for is to experience wholly the presence of God. The only thing that will satisfy your soul infinitely, eternally, in a way that will never be filled up, is to know the presence of God. This next passage uh, that is going to come on the screen here is a description of heaven, if you could show that. And I'm going to read this, and I want you to think about what makes this place heaven. Take a look. It says this. This is a vision of heaven. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away te every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Why is this place heaven? It's not because of the good stuff that's there. It's not because of the streets of gold. It's not because of all of the things that you can imagine. It's because God's presence is there. And we will fully, those who are in Christ, will fully experience the glorious presence of God. Here's a way of thinking of it. Uh, how, how many of you know what I mean when I say the game Pac-Man? You know Pac-Man? Okay, he's a little yellow ball. Okay, he, he goes around the game and he eats the dots. And sometimes when Pac-Man gets really fortunate, he, he gets to eat bonus fruit. Okay, he gets to eat the bonus fruit. And when he's unlucky, he has to run away from ghosts. All right? So that's Pac-Man. Now, what does Pac-Man think heaven is like? Pac-Man probably thinks heaven is only as good as his imagination can make it. 
Pac-Man probably thinks that heaven is, okay, great. I don't have to do all the monotonous dot eating. All I have to do is eat nothing but bonus fruit. This is a video game, by the way, if I haven't made that clear. Uh, bonus fruit, and, and there won't be any ghosts there. And that's what heaven's like. Heaven's going to be awesome. Just fruit, no ghosts. Now, little does that Pac-Man know that he's on a two-dimensional screen. And he has no idea all of the wonderful pleasures that happen in a three-dimensional space. He's never been to Wonderland, okay? He's never graduated from university and felt that wonderful thing. He's never, he's never had a, a family. He just thinks that heaven is only as good as his imagination can think. And you know what? We're often the same way. We only think heaven is as good as our imagination can make it. Oh, heaven's going to be great. It's going to be full of all of the good stuff I like. No, that, that heaven is not good enough. No, because we're living in our 3D space, but we have no idea the manifest glory of God. And we will experience his presence in an altogether new way. That's heaven, where God's presence is. That's what you're designed for. You're designed for the presence of God. In fact, when God made Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were in God's presence. Now, this is, this is a teaching for another day. I'm not going to get into it. But Adam and Eve in, in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time, that was not heaven. That was not eternity. It was different. But Adam and Eve were experiencing the presence of God. That's what they were designed for, to know his presence, to know him. So now if you're really sharp, you see a problem, don't you? If, you, if you're sharp. You'll know, you'll point this out. Okay, we're designed for his presence. He's promised us his presence. Why aren't we experiencing his presence fully right now? We want to know his presence. He wants to give us his presence. What's getting in the way? And the answer to that question is found in that story of Adam and Eve. Sin. Sin is what gets in the way. Of, our, of God's presence in our lives. Adam and Eve, they were in God's presence. They were in the garden. They were enjoying his presence and his, and his manifest glory. And they had one thing that they could not do. Eat from that tree. Don't eat from the tree. And of course, eventually, after being tempted by Satan, they do take from that tree. They sin against God. They sin and rebel against the manifest glory of God. And this is what happens right after that, if we could show the next passage here. This is what happens after they sin in that, in that garden. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim. Cherubim is a, it's a holy angel. You do not want to mess with one, okay? They'll take you out, all right? A cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Banished from the presence of God. Banished from Eden. Now, if you're like me and you're reading this, you're thinking, that seems awfully harsh. He just took an apple from a tree. And, and, and this is the consequence. Just this one little seemingly insignificant sin. Well, you know what? It's not 
it's not so much about the degree of the act. It's about who the act is a sin against. Here's what I mean. I think you'll follow me. If you come up to me and you insult, insult my 2003 Volkswagen, okay, you think, oh, that's a stinking car. Don't like that car. I'm, I'm not really going to, I don't care. I, I'm not a car guy. I do not care. Don't care at all. Now, if you come up to me and do a similar level insult against me personally, okay, I'm going to care a little bit, a little bit more. I mean, I don't like to be insulted. Now, you come up to me, and you don't insult me. You insult my wife. New ball game. Why? Because the, the insult was so much worse? No. It's who the insult was against. And I know many of you who have children, I mean, you can go after the parents all day. Go after you all day. Fine. Don't you go after my kids, right? And that's just an illustration of it's not so much the act. It's who the act is against. Adam and Eve sinned against the over-the-top, almighty, powerful, holy, holy, holy God. The God where angels are lined up to give him praises for eternity, glorious praises for all time. And we sin against that God. Yeah, it does deserve wrath. It does deserve hell. It does. Now, you might also think, well, okay, perhaps they deserve punishment, but, I mean, why such a harsh punishment? Why, why banish them from the, from the garden? And the truth is, banishment from God's presence actually is a merciful act because sinful people in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God is fatal. It's fatal. Far from being a wonderful promise of God's presence, now that people are in sin, God's presence now becomes fatal. God's presence consumes us. I'm going to show you a, a, another passage here. We're going to go through a lot of scripture here. And this happens, before we read this, this happens right after Moses gets the law from God. So Moses, who is the leader at one point in time of the, God's people, of the nation of Israel, he goes to this mountain. Mount Sinai, and he goes up this mountain and receives the law. And the law are the conditions of God's covenant with his people. And a covenant is much like a marriage. It's a, it's a, a loving agreement where both sides have responsibilities. God promises to lead the people. He promises to be their God. And the people promise to follow after him. It's a covenant, a loving, a loving marriage, so to speak. And so... Moses assumes that, oh, things are going to go well after this. Now that we've got this covenant with God. But Moses goes down from Mount Sinai. And he looks at what God's people are up to when he's done. Many of you know the story. The Israelites are building a golden calf to worship. They're, they're committing idolatry right when they're ratifying the marriage covenant. That's like cheating on your honeymoon. God's people, so sinful, so against the things of God, have sinned even as that covenant was being ratified. And this is what happens. This is what God tells Moses. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. 
if I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. Now God's presence is no longer that wonderful thing that it's meant to be because of sin. Now God's presence is fatal because of his holiness. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the sun, right? God's people, they need to be with God. They, they need his guidance. They need his light. Just like we need the sun. Can't get too far away from the sun, right? We'll freeze. We can't see. But if you get too close, you burn up. And because of sin, that's the case for us. So Israel, God's people, are in the middle of a very strange predicament, right? They need the presence of God, but because of their sin, God's presence is fatal to them. So what are they going to do? Well, actually, the law that God gives to the people addresses many of those problems. In fact, one of the tribes of Israel, Israel is split up into several tribes, one of those tribes are called the Levites, and they're actually responsible for mediating between the presence of a holy, holy, holy God among them and the sinful nature of the people. Their job is to make sure that God's presence can be with them without consuming them. So what they have to do is they have to do sacrifices. They have to do rituals. They have to do ceremonies. They have to do all of these things so that they can be ceremonially clean. They have to answer this question, how can God's presence go among his people when we're so sinful? And one of the solutions that they eventually get to is the building of the temple. They build the temple to house the presence of God. And again, in the middle of that temple, in the very central inner sanctum, it's called the Holy of Holies, God's presence resides. And in the Holy of Holies, just before it, there's this thick curtain. This thick curtain that only one person per year could go past in order to ask for the salvation and the, and the forgiveness of Israel's sins. This thick curtain that symbolized the separation between the holy, holy, holy God and the people. So that works for a while. The Levites mediate between God's presence and the people. They're not being consumed, but they have to do ceremony after ceremony after ceremony. But things, things get even more complicated. Because Israel continues, God's people continue to sin and sin and sin and sin. And you can read the Old Testament and you can see the types of sins that they're up to. They're not taking care of the poor. They're not taking care of the less fortunate. They're bringing false worship to God. They're committing idolatry and following after other gods. They are continuing to live a life of sin against God. And eventually, God, in his sovereignty allows for the foreign nations around Israel to take it over. They destroy the temple. And God's people are scattered across the ancient Near East. They're put into exile because they did not follow after the covenant. And God's presence, his very presence, is withdrawn from the temple. Now God's people have to figure out, okay, what do I do now? What do we do now? What does it mean to be the people of God without God's presence. What does that mean? And they're trying to figure that out in many of the books of the Bible. What does it mean to be without the temple? But then God raises up a prophet 
who has a vision of what it's going to be like in the future. God raises up a prophet to give Israel hope. And that prophet was named Ezekiel. And this is the vision that Ezekiel has. Take a look at what it says. He has this vision. And a man is bringing him to places. And in verse 43 it says, Then the man brought me to the gate facing east. And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So Ezekiel has this vision, this vision of God's presence being restored to the temple. The people of Israel are thinking, okay, Let's rebuild this temple. We've got to rebuild the temple. And when that happens, God's glory will be restored to his people. His presence will be back with his people. And we can be his covenant people. We'll, we'll, we'll do better. We'll follow the covenant. We'll follow him. And we can have that restored relationship with God. And eventually, the Israelites do return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But they're sorely disappointed that when that temple is finished... God's glory doesn't manifest itself in the same way that it once did. And at the end of the Old Testament, the people of God are wondering, where is he? Where's God? He promised to be with us, and he's not. Now, this is where the story of Israel and our story intersect, right? Because we go through our lives, and there are moments where we're thinking, God, if you were with me, if you were for me, that's not happening, but it did. If you were really with me, if you were really for me, I would expect things to go differently. If you were really with me, if you were really for me, man. And I'm not talking about trivial things. I'm talking about, you know, you raise your kids in the Lord and they, and they fall away. And you're thinking, God, you're really with me. That's just one example. There's, you guys could tell me hundreds. I wonder though, I wonder if when we're having those moments, we're not making the same mistake that the Israelites were making. Perhaps, perhaps we're expecting God's presence to manifest, manifest itself in one way when God has something much, much greater planned instead. Enter the Christmas story. This is a well-known story that I'm going to read for you all. And this is where the Christmas story intersects with the story of God's presence. This is what uh, this passage says. May, many of you have read it before, but here we go. This is what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son 
and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Christmas story, the story of Jesus coming to this earth is the answer to the promise of God's presence. Sure, it's not what Ezekiel was expecting, but this is how God had planned it, foreordained it since the beginning of time. God's presence would be among his people in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, being both fully God and fully man, dwelt among his people. And as Jesus grows up, he makes it very plain and very clear that it is his presence that is the answer to that promise. Take a look at what happens here. One of his disciples, in this next passage, one of his disciples, uh, his name's Philip, he's wondering, when is God's presence going to return? He's wondering, okay, if the Messiah is here, I'm going to read this soon, if the Messiah is here, if you are the Messiah, Jesus, if you are the one who is going to make sure that all of the Old Testament promises come to be realized, then show me God's presence. Because that's what we're promised. God's presence is meant to fill the temple. That's what we know is going to come. So if you're the Messiah, we had better see the presence of God the Father among us. And this is what happens. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. We'll know you're the Messiah once we see the Father. Once we see that cloud of glory. Once we see his presence again. Then we will know. And this is how Jesus responds. Don't you know me? Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. To know Christ, to know him, is to know the Father. And to know the Father is to know eternal life. Take a look at this next passage. Last week I told you that salvation is much deeper and richer than what we think. And here's the answer to that. This is what Jesus says concerning himself. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. It's not about the stuff in heaven. It's not about all of the things that you might accumulate there. It's not the fact that there are no ghosts and lots of fruit. It's because God's presence is there. It's because Jesus Christ's presence is there. And here's the wonderful, wonderful thing about knowing Jesus Christ and knowing eternal life. That's not a reality you have to wait to receive. You can know Jesus Christ. You can have a personal relationship with him today. That eternal life you don't have to wait for that. You can experience it truly today. You can know the peace that comes from God. You can know the, the joy. You can know the love of God, not in the future, not in some far off time, but today. 
When we believe in Jesus Christ, when we follow after him, when we devote our lives to him, his spirit fills us. The divine fills us. God's presence fills us, indwells us so that we can know Jesus Christ personally. We can have a personal relationship with God. We don't need mediators. We don't need the Levites. We can know Christ personally. And when we know Christ, we can experience, truly experience eternal life in the expectation that in the future we will fully experience eternal life. Many of us, when we worship God, when we're singing together worshiping, many of us, and I'm not, I'm not saying do this, I'm not saying don't do this, I'm just saying what people do, many people put up their hands. And that's a, a wonderful picture. It's a picture that God's on his throne, and you're, you're indicating that. God's on his throne, he's supreme, he's above all. He is God. And he's glorious. And that's, that's wonderful. Some people, when they sing praises to God, they put their hand here. And that's another picture. And that's a picture that God isn't just in, in heaven, just some far off place. God's presence is with us. The Holy Spirit indwells us and we can know him personally. We can know him. We don't have to wait for some far off time. We can know the presence of Jesus Christ today. We can know truly eternal life today. I'm encouraging you all to think about that, to do that. Now, if you're really sharp, and I think some of you are, if you're really sharp, you've thought of a little nick in this whole equation. If God's presence is fatal, to sinners, like we all are, and God's presence indwells us, if we believe in him, why are we not consumed? That's a great question. Good job. And I'm going to close with this final passage that's going to bring this all together. When Jesus goes to the cross, when he breathes his last, when he goes to that cross as a substitute for ourselves, when he dies and takes our sin down with it. Look at what happens. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain, remember that curtain that separated the holy of holies from the people, that separated the presence of God from the sinful people? At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? No longer necessary. Because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, those who believe in him are cleansed of sin. Unbelievable. And that rip down the center of that curtain shows us that we can now truly know the presence of God in our lives. The curtain's gone. And we can know God's presence. This Christmas... Maybe it's going to disappoint you. Maybe it's going to be the best Christmas ever. I don't know. But I do know this. This Christmas, you can experience a slice of eternal life truly by knowing Christ, by trusting him, by loving him, by asking him to indwell us and be with us. And the eager expectation that when we do finally reach the end or when Jesus returns, 
we will experience his presence fully. We are not consumed because of Jesus Christ. And we can know God fully because of his sacrifice. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. And as they do, I want to pray for us. Right after the service, friends, I'll, I'll make myself available for a little while. I'm sure some others will as well. If you want to have this relationship with Christ, if you want to make that decision today, I'd be so happy to talk to you about that. And if any of you need to talk to someone about something, there will be people at the front to talk to you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your presence. Thank you for that wonderful act where that curtain was torn in two to show us that we can be in your presence, no longer afraid of the glory of your holiness because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're desperate for that, and we need you. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that for those in this room right now who have not given their lives to you, who are not uh, indwelt by your spirit, who have not been cleansed of sin, I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts and minds, open their eyes, Lord, to your goodness and your glory. I pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.